Hello, welcome to the Keys Coach podcast. This is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys and synth players and talk about their life in music. Today's guest is the amazing Jamie Saphir. Now I've known Jamie for a good number of years now and it was great to sit down with him and dive deep into his journey. Jamie has played with so many different artists, Will Young, Kylie Minogue, Misha Paris, Oli Mers, and alongside his work in pop music, he has a huge love for jazz and regularly plays with Ian Shaw, Emma Smith and Claire Martin. In this conversation, we talk about Jamie's early days growing up in Manchester, how he initially got into playing music and how he then moved to London to study jazz. We find out how he joined Will Young's band, how he got to grips with using a Nord, and we also chat about his solo show, which presents the glamorous and not so glamorous side of being a piano player. I haven't actually seen this show, but I'm definitely going to go and see it when more dates are released. It sounds amazing. This was a really fascinating conversation. Jamie's such a lovely guy and he shares some amazing advice for anyone looking to enter the music industry. So before we dive into the conversation, if you're looking to level up your keys playing and are interested in hearing more about the keys coach as we continue to grow, I've put a link to sign up to our waitlist in the episode description. This will mean you'll be first to know as soon as new content is released. We have lots of exciting plans for the future. Okay, let's get to it. Here is the conversation I had with the wonderful Jamie Saphir. All right, Jamie, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, great to see you. Whereabouts are you today? Thank you, Adam. It's lovely to be here. I'm at home in Bounds Green in North London. And um, yeah, really, really happy to be doing my first ever podcast interview. So thanks. That's pretty cool. Um, You're originally from Manchester. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A place that has remained very, very important to me, even though I haven't lived there for 14 years now. But it's, uh, as we'll probably get into, a huge part of my kind of uh, cultural musical identity. And uh, it's a very, very special place. I'm in Manchester at the moment. No way. Um, That's right. Yeah, I love it here. Whereabouts? uh, uh, Quite near Piccadilly Station. Fantastic. So like Ancoats maybe or other side of the station? Yeah, just around the corner from there. um, I'm not going to make you give your address online, don't worry. Yeah, everyone will come and try and yeah. Oh, that's that's very exciting. Well, I'm always, I'm there a a fair bit, so we should have a beer. Yeah, no, it's great. I I love it around here. I think it's, I think Manchester's a really cool place. It's like the the fact that you can walk everywhere. Yes, that's one of the main benefits. It's just so amazing. You know, you can't do that in London and like other major cities. You can walk, you can walk anywhere and people will talk to you and be nice to you and be polite as well. (laughs) It is. It's pretty cool. I do like it. Um, So yeah, tell me, maybe a little bit, maybe we should start from the beginning. I mean, so tell, you obviously grew up in Manchester yeah. Uh, were, were you part of a, how did how did you get into music in the first place was it do you have a musical family or was this something you found yourself yeah it's a, a good question um I grew up in a I was very fortunate to be in a nice leafy little suburb just about half an hour south of Manchester called Altrincham um and uh, as is very common I think with with professional musicians music was always around so there was a piano because my mum played a bit but her parents um Malcolm and Sheila um were kind of semi-professional jazz musicians really and they met playing in a trad jazz band in the 1950s something that I didn't really know anything about until I started looking more into my granddad's career he was a trombonist and my grandmother was a was a singer but during the 1950s there was this cultural movement of 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 what was called traditionalist jazz like a boom like a resurgence right uh essentially a renaissance to play jazz in the style of 1920s New Orleans, which has only been 30 years prior, but to them it was a very much like a, 
a sort of period piece and it was a very strict style. Um, so I loved kind of learning about that. But at the same time, that music is a, is a very particular sound and way of playing that doesn't really appeal to a lot of people. So although they had really interesting careers and um, I could talk about them forever, but they, um, they had residencies at the Cavern Club. So when I was getting into music and getting into the Beatles, my gran would tell me stories of how she, they would, they would every Friday, they'd sing after the Beatles and they didn't think they were up to much. They said they, uh, yeah, she said John broke her microphone stand once <laughs> and they, um, they thought it was silly that they had to use capos to play in different keys. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I know. Yeah. That the origin of the, the Beatles and the jazz, the great dichotomy. Um, but the, they basically had uh, music around all the time when I was growing up. And I remember very distinctly being given a copy of Kind of Blue at the age of 11 and then I also remember trying really hard to like it and not really getting it for a couple of years. Uh, and then it sort of slowly dawned on me that this was uh, a momentous piece of, of genius, really. So I guess I was into jazz from about 12, 13 um, by the family. But I was also very lucky that I had in a relatively small suburban town, I had an astonishing music school that had been set up about 10 years prior in the mid 90s. It's called The Music Place and it's still still exists to this day um, in Altrincham, and it basically was set up by an extraordinary woman called Lucy Howells um, and she basically built a school for um, peripatetic private music teaching so I had one-on-one -on -one piano lessons there from the age of seven and the same teacher um, who is a great friend still has taught four generations of my family wow which is quite amazing he actually taught my grandma first then he taught me at the age of seven um, we're still incredibly good friends um, and he is where it all started really um, because he's yeah very much started me down the path he was a very interesting musician his name was Johnny Musgrave and um, he had a sort of background that was a real mix of jazz classical and pop which I think is something that that you described when you're talking about what you wanted this podcast to address so I think I was incredibly fortunate to kind of be randomly put with this teacher who was not only an amazing performer and had toured all around the world and stuff and was taking a bit of was taking quite a lot of time out of performing for personal reasons but I meant that I had just half an hour a week for 10 years where I was shown um and exposed to an incredible array of the best music not only that but Johnny would give me mini discs to take home um, regularly even gave me a mini disc player so when I was 11 I got to hear uh, the meters and the yellow jackets and weather reports and the headhunters stuff that was a bit more accessible than you know kind of blue maybe to a to a teenager to a young man so all of those factors for me I feel so incredibly lucky especially when I speak to other people who had a more challenging time finding the right path um, I just consider that to be just sheer sheer fluke opportunity and I'm very grateful to all of the people involved for all of those amazing being just being exposed to that I think just being shown music at that age is, is incredibly important so what what kind of things were you doing on the piano with him? It's, it's a really good question so I did my classical grades up to about grade five um, and I think I got a merit I didn't do great and I didn't go beyond that but um, I was very lucky that at that time the jazz ABRSM grades had just started so I also did those from a young age I think I did one two three and five on the jazz ABRSM it's probably where I first encountered um the the, uh, the great Nikki Isles who I believe you you have on the podcast soon 
Um, and I remember a lot of um, a lot of those songs were things that we now know and love. Um, but that was the first time I'd be exposed to to things. And I, I also remember Johnny would write out fantastic solos for me to learn, because I think at the age of nine, ten, or eleven, it's uh, it wasn't considered cheating to to prearrange an improvised solo. But um, gosh, how lucky I was to have somebody who not only do that but was exposing me to all these great elements and after i did the jazz grade five at about uh 12 or 13 we got into the real book and he'd and he'd be bringing me yellow jackets tunes with gospel changes and he'd be bringing me um pick up them average white bind funk pop and soul tunes we'd be looking at herbie hancock uh various groove tunes um and then although it was a little bit more out of uh johnny's personal experience we then got into things like um, uh, post bop and the sort of 60s Miles Davis second quintet and although he maybe didn't wasn't comfortable playing in that context was still um, incredibly knowledgeable about you know history of jazz and, and, and where those things went so yeah it all came pretty young and I think that, that that was really 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 lucky because I think it's much more common to find jazz in your late teens um, uh, because it's such an odd thing it's such an esoteric worlds um so to have had both a you know a jazz grandparent and this incredible teacher who's playing and you know i i i have loved and has been a huge influence i think he's, he's very very lucky so i'm very grateful that sounds amazing that sounds like such a kind of rich a kind of like musical world you were exposed to at such a young age do you remember when you played with another musician for the first time that's a really good question yeah well one of the main one of the main brilliant things about this music school, uh, the music place, was that they had ensembles. So I do actually vividly remember it. Um, and it was basically they put you together in a band with people of a similar age with a tutor. And I think I was 12 when I started. And it was a kind of jazz funk ensemble run by another absolutely extraordinary world class musician called Andy Schofield, who, um, aside from, you know, living in this little town in, in the suburbs of Manchester, had played lots with John Taylor and Kenny Wheeler. Um, and most recently was was touring with George Michael, uh, now runs his own big band in Prague. Um, and, he, you know, he, I ended up in a room with him by sheer chance. And he's become like family, as, as, has, as has Johnny. And so we were put together in this group playing things like Chameleon. And uh, the first song we ever played was The Pink Panther. And I remember that it was a lead. It was a lead sheet, which was utterly terrifying because I never encountered music that wasn't music. And I remember ten minutes before my first session, which is very nerve wracking. I think I was twelve, and everyone else in the band was fifteen to seventeen. I remember Johnny, you know, who was in this in the same school at the same time, just grabbing me and, and showing me. Right, here's a voicing for D minor seven, and here's a voicing for B flat thirteen, and here's a voicing for A seven. Right, l- learn them now. Go get in that room. And, and jam and uh, that was really exciting and it was a real thrill to be around uh, a, you know electric bass guitar and a, and a drummer and that was something that happened every week for four or five years um, and was undoubtedly one of the most important influences on me um, having the freedom to improvise with the rhythm section at the age of 12 and 13 even though it was it was all complete dross it was still a, a great way to learn you know and, and i think that people aren't given the opportunity to experiment enough uh, and i immediately felt comfortable playing a road sound and um i was so lucky that i got to borrow 
uh, people like Johnny's keyboards and, and, and got to use a Nord at the age of, of 13. Uh, he subsequently sold me the Nord. So oh, was, really? <laughs> yeah, I've been, in, I've been a Nord user now for more than half my life. Yeah, they're good though, aren't they? They're no. so, they are just like the, 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 I, for me, they're just so good. I've got, I'm, I'm just about to get a, uh, I've always had the electro, but I'm just about to get the stage one, uh, which would be, but are you going for a four? I think so. Yeah. The new one. It's very exciting. That's a, that's, um, a significant uh upwards move yeah it's right yeah for government. congratulations yeah. we could do another podcast about nord maybe another i know time. i know i did i did think when i was creating this podcast like i gotta gotta make sure it's a uh it's not a total gear fest yeah. <laughs> i've just gone straight but, in with the gear chat no i love it in a in a kind of maybe slightly more uh practical or, or holistic way to any you know any young person out there or any parent i would say that any kind of nord keyboard is uh, an incredibly intuitive way to get somebody into one of the big parts of being a piano or a keyboard player, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is, you know, sound and what you play and how you play it. Yeah. So it's, it's super simple. It's also, you know, the best class kind of sounds that you can get. Um, it's fun. It's easy to use. Yeah. It's expensive, but, um, by, by second hand, you know, mm. um, these things, these things are amazing. And I remember the first time I turned on a Hammond sound, which is something that's become quite a big part of my of my career, I guess. And I'm just thinking, like, why is it different? Why do these tiny switches at the top make such a difference? They're called percussion, but there's no percussion involved. And I remember not understanding draw bars until an older keyboard player kind of gave me like a five minute lesson. And yeah, Nords are a big part of of uh, kind of musical development f- for me. Although that yeah sounds kind of lame now saying it no they're amazing cool. they're amazing instruments and in the same way that i guess you know a horn player a guitarist might find a particular uh, musical synergy with a with an instrument that was from an early age it was it was a nord and it was like you know you found a road to put a phaser on and you sound like steely dan you think that's the coolest thing in the world mm. do you think you can learn i mean you've obviously played like a real life fender roads and i imagine a real hammond as well and all these different things do you think do you think uh, playing those real instruments helps you understand the Nord sounds even more in how they work and kind of gives you a greater appreciation? Or do you think it's possible to kind of sound really amazing on those sounds without necessarily having played the real thing? It's a really good question. I think I'd like to think the former, but I think um, uh, that the the it, it's it's true. It's definitely possible to get to grips with how to use a Nord without having used the real instruments. Um, I've never, ever played a real clavinet shock horror, something um, I'm, yeah, I don't know why. I wish I had. I don't think I have either, actually. The opportunity. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine local has just bought one, so I, I should, be, should be dealing with that issue shortly. But I don't think that's made me a worse clavinet player. I feel like I know how to get the best out of the Nord various clavinet sound and I feel comfortable doing that um maybe with a Hammond there's a, there's, a, there's another element to it and um I think that most people would say that that any experience with the real instrument is is better but you know that um for example a Wurlitzer's keyboard and a Rhodes keyboard respond very differently to that of a Nord stage or a Nord electro so it's not necessarily going to help um even though it's great experience for anyone to play the real instruments and I'm lucky that I've got both of those in the next room um I uh, I will often go to go to my Nord, obviously for convenience, not getting a hernia. <laughs> that sounds cool. I mean, let, let's let's keep on going. So we you you were you were kind of having all these amazing experiences at yeah. um, in Manchester and Altrincham, and then and then you moved down to London. So do you want to talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, well, there's a little bit of a gap period as well because um, I was very much interested in technology and, and, and studio stuff and was the conversely to being in, interested in in Headhunters and, and Yellow Jackets and Chick Career Electric Band, I was absolutely obsessed with Oasis. Right. <laughs> and was playing bass in a band which had um, um, the great Johnny Mars son, Niall Martin. Uh, and I had this whole other side of it being exposed to indie and rock and singer-songwriter music that I loved. And I kind of felt like I had to make a bit of a choice. I remember feeling like I wanted to work in a recording studio. Okay. Uh, in my early teens, because I was so fascinated by by them and reading reading books about um, Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, things like that. Um, and I thought that I'd maybe go to Salford Tech and do a studio course and, you know, end up working in Studio Manchester. And I think both of these uh, sort of trajectories continued um, side by side until I finally, um, finally found jazz, I suppose. And this, this I would call like, getting interested in the great American songbook and music that swung. And, and that happened around the time I started having lessons with uh, a great, a great legend of the North called Les Chisnell, who um, amongst other people is responsible for teaching Gwilym Simcock, who, who's dedicated a song to him on an album and uh, John Screet and uh, my mind's gone blank. He taught basically anyone who came through Chets, which right. is an incredible, uh, incredible array of alumni. And although I didn't have that many lessons with Les, we spent a lot of time together. And um, he was also on the faculty of a jazz summer school I did, which was also run by this amazing school, The Music Place. Um, and the other tutors on that week-long annual um, summer school were Mike Walker, uh, Andy Schofield, Ian Dixon, um, Caroline Bowden, a great drummer, and then Steve Watts would play the bass. So that was another insanely eye-opening experience to do every year for five years yeah. um and i have i have a, have a number of incredible memories of being 13 14 15 and having mike walker stand behind me and put his hands on my shoulders and tell me to you know relax and open my ears to what was going on around me and teaching me how to improvise in a way that i might sing a melody experiences that um Oh, sorry, I've got a friend here. This is called oh. Pussy. <laughs> For anyone who's obviously listening to the podcast, uh, Jamie's cat's just climbed up behind him on the window. So, very cute. <laughs> um, uh, so, I, the, these experiences, I remember at the time, they felt very, very profound. I mean, if anyone's ever come across Mike Walker, he has, his, he has a, an extraordinary way of, of imparting knowledge onto, mm -hmm. onto people particularly young people yeah and it, it felt it felt very serious and very exciting to have your mind and ears opened up to a way of making music that was really holistic it was about every part of your personality and you know it was really fun and these these summer schools were were incredibly important i i, I met, met people on there who were in a very similar position to me probably starting on a trajectory towards conservatoires okay and that was where I met somebody three years older than me who said, um, have you thought about instead of going to like study music tech at Salford, why don't you go and study jazz in London? And I went, oh, I've really thought about that. And he said, well, if I was a jazz piano player, I'd want to have lessons with John Taylor at Al. And I thought, oh, I didn't really think of that as an option. I think at that point, I'd never really thought that um, jazz courses existed at a conservatoire level. And so as I had started having these lessons with Les and we'd get into, um, I remember being on, on, sorry, I remember being predictably fixated with Keith Jarrett at this time. 
uh, and that was my kind of way in after um, the way into piano tree music and then going a bit backwards from that as is a logical course I found the first Miles Davis quintet so I'd say that's probably the first like authentic acoustic small band jazz music that I really passionately loved and you know finding those records you know those five records that they made in two days steaming relaxing working smoking injecting I don't yeah. know what the <laughs> other ones are um where they record you know things like Olio and If I Were a Bell and um though those those records are really really pivotal and finding what I wanted to do and and hearing the the sublime delicate touch of of Red Garland or the you know the utter groove of Winston Kelly that was really like okay I've done this done this jazz funk thing I've done a bit of rock I really want to be that guy I want to I want to play mm. small band jazz and I was lucky enough that there was Although I didn't go to, to Cheatham's, there was a, a saxophone player at my school called Sam Rapley. He went to the Royal Academy of Music. And so we started a band, a quartet, and we were playing real book stuff probably from the age of 15. And 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 we all wanted to go to London. We all wanted to study jazz. Well, three, three of us did, certainly. And um, that was kind of a natural path, really. From then on, um, it was like uh, that was where, where I was, um, when I was he- headed Amazing! Oh, that sounds really cool. It sounds like a that sounds a really good journey. So, when you went when you got to Guildhall, how how did you find that experience? Oh, terrifying! It was uh, it was such an extreme shock to the system. Um, I would characterise the approach of the Guildhall then certain tutors. Um, I mean, it's I must caveat that with it's an incredibly incredibly different course now, but this is thirteen years ago. <laughs> The, the approach generally felt like the complete antithesis of everything I'd experienced in Manchester. Right. Um, the way that I had been taught music hitherto had been um, incredibly soulful and feelings-based and, and, uh, and genuinely holistic, and that's a bit of a buzzword, but um, it, was, it was very much about singing what you can hear and about participating in a you know pseudo spiritual way and then I got to guilt on it was like transcribe write sample solos um here's loads of very divisive opinions that I think about what you should and shouldn't listen to (laughs) and it was actually really it was a real shock um and I look back and think that at the time it was done to provoke a reaction and it was done for a reason and it was done to get everyone in line to do a bit a lot of hard work but it kind of made me react against it in a way and I had a very uh a very kind of severe reaction because um I particularly identified with the way that Les, Les Chisnell um improvised and her music which was one of uh utter economy and a sort of profound commitment to to notes, you right. know, to usually a very small number of notes. Um, I would urge anyone out there to listen to Les Chisnell. He doesn't have, I don't think, any music out under his own name, but he's on a lot of Mike Walker's albums. And there is an, um, an album on streaming services called The Northwest Real Book, which is something I remember attending the launch of where they basically collated all the compositions of the best composers in the in the northwest which is an astonishing thing and that i think that's indicative of what an incredibly rich and diverse scene there was in in manchester at that time yeah it was uh, i wouldn't say it was standard wise and a par with london but it certainly had highs as as you know the best was as good definitely with pe- people like ian dixon mike uh, andy and les they are still 
you know, wholly revered by all tutors at all the jazz colleges. They've just chosen not to live their life in a big, busy, smelly city. Um, so that, yeah, Real Book Northwest album has um, Steve Berry, another another really, really important educator from the Northwest, formerly of Loose Tubes. It's him, Andy Schofield, Mike Walker, uh, and Les Chisnell, produced by Ian Dixon. Um, and that's a, a beautiful way you can hear how Les's approach to music is so t- is, is really is really genuinely unique. Um, I know that Gwilym considers him to be uh, a serious influence, and um, I, I very much felt committed to that kind of aesthetic and idea of of constantly striving to be economical. That less was always more, and, and you should only play something if you if you heard it and really felt it and believed it, um, and that space was the most important part of any kind of musical statements and I, I i think i believe that so strongly in a in a sort of pseudo religious fervor that i i refuse to play fast for about three years oh wow okay fine fair enough i'll just for anyone listening i'll put i'll put a link to that album in the description so I'd people like can go and check it out yeah it's not no it's not uh, not well known enough yeah we can get it more well known hopefully um so you're obviously having this amazing well sort of semi-amazing i imagine amazing on the social side and kind of meeting lots it was of new very people exciting um, yeah, I mean, you had a similar experience, I believe. Yeah, yeah being, being a fresher in London is is exciting. We lived in in a great place, and we were surrounded by incredible, awe inspiring talent. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and then I think I think what's interesting is then kind of what you went to do after that. Um, so after after leaving Guildhall, um, how did you how did you manage the kind of bridge between studying and then beginning to kind of work as a professional? How did how did that work for you? I think that's one of the hardest bridges to navigate in any professional life, really. Um, and I suppose I left college um, very much fueled by the, the trajectory I've been given by two particularly amazing teachers uh, in my third and fourth years at Guildhall, where I'd kind of struggled and fought the system a bit and I'd nearly left after my third year. But my uh, my mentor for most of those four years, in fact, for all of those four years, was a an exceptional educator and all-round wonderful human being called Malcolm Edmondstone, um, whose whose ability to to teach is is you know is absolutely un, unparalleled. His ability to inspire people, um, the way that he imparts knowledge, is something that I I will never ever forget, and I vividly remember um, most of our lessons together. Uh, he was yeah the most incredible teacher and I'm so lucky to to have had him as a tutor and now to call him a very close friend to compliment that in my last two years I was very lucky to have a lot of time with Nikki Isles who I had been a huge fan of I mean I had all the albums she was on and used to go to gigs and wasn't um courageous enough to go and speak to her (laughs) so of course one day I did and she was just just utterly delightful and uh yeah again I'm very very pleased to say that she that she's a good friend so between those two i felt like i had been given all this extraordinary knowledge um and then when you leave college malcolm said a very wise thing to me he said it takes about the time you were studying for all of that knowledge to properly sink in and that really resonated for me because the first couple of years i floundered a bit um emotionally because it's a hard time for anyone to leave education for the first time absolutely yeah to be uh, independent economically in a huge scary city and to be striving to make a career 
in quite a, quite a tough world, you know, freelance piano player. I wasn't doing any school teaching, um, but I was lucky that I had what I would call a couple of breaks. Um, so uh, I can't remember how it happened, but I met um, a great piano player on the scene called Barry Green. I think it was through, it would have been through Ian Shaw, I met Barry Green. And through Barry Green, I met Emilia Martinson, who's a wonderful uh, Swedish Slovenian vocalist. And I remember the first time going to do a function with Emilia, um, which is, you know, it's the kind of stuff that one doesn't, an eyelid about now but back then it was such a big deal to be working with somebody of profile and somebody who was known in the scene and um who was older than you and was um, you know she's an incredible vocalist yeah um we had a really nice duo gig and i think we bonded over the fact that in her pad amelia had songs by uh, paul simon and Joni mitchell and i knew and loved these songs something that you find very common amongst us jazz piano players we love great songwriting and we love people like that uh and i remember amelia being really 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 wonderful and open and and, and generous with her spirit but she also passed my phone number on to a, a, a guy called ross stanley who's one of the best musicians on the planet without a doubt and and i was uh probably in my first year out of college and at that point um thankfully for me ross started throwing work my way and um i was incredibly grateful to be working at the shard with various singers uh, who you'll know um the shard was a kind of residency gig but with a beautiful yamaha grand um but it had music on you know three bands a day seven nights a week so i was there quite a lot depping for people covering last minute because i was always available <laughs> um and Ross used to joke that I'd always pick the phone up after fewer than two rings. <laughs> he said, you know, he's imagining me walking around the house, just basically looking at my phone, waiting for it to ring. And he'd say, are you free tonight? I go, yes, where do you need me? And that was a really exciting time because, um, well, you know, things, things would happen for whatever circumstantial reasons. Um, when you're as good as Ross is, a lot of people want you and they can't always have you. Of course. Um, and I'll never forget him calling me to say, um, I need you to play organ with Stan Saltzman's quartet and me thinking, oh my good Lord. Um, and that was just one of the most uh, invigorating and, and nourishing experiences. I did two gigs with Stan's quartet with Nick Smart and Tim Giles. Uh, I didn't record them. I really, really wish I had, but um, uh, they were they were really formative experiences. Um, I think I was 24, 25. And um, it's it's such, uh, it's such an honor to be given that opportunity. But I feel like in this world that luck has a huge amount to play, a uh, huge part to play with how we advance and what I think that most of the opportunities that we were given, we are given are, are sort of happenstance. Uh, and I think I've been dealt a good hand and I'm, I'm trying to be grateful for that every day. No, absolutely. I, I, I mean, a lot of musicians say that actually weirdly doing a lot of these interviews, a lot, a lot of people have put down all these different things that have happened and they say, oh, like it was just luck, but that's yeah. quite a hard thing to kind of quantify, isn't it? I mean, do you think there are things that made you more lucky, <laughs> if that makes sense? That's a really good point. I think that um, this is possibly a common theme, but um, that in the music industry, um, being a good musician is 50% of the job. Yeah, and 50, the other fifty percent of the job is being a good person, uh, and you know that can mean whatever you want it to mean, really. Um, but for me, it was about being good to spend time with, and I trying to make people laugh and feel comfortable, and enjoy themselves, and be a part of a team, really. And uh, 
I, I certainly think at that time I was feeling very lucky to be doing all the things I was doing. Of and, um, you know, probably enjoying myself a lot. And I don't know, I think that personality, irrespective of your musicality, is a huge factor in whether you get booked for stuff. And, and it was around the time that Ross was giving me this work. I mean, I feel like I've skipped over a bit here. I skipped over six months of like, you know, slightly sketchy, not having quite enough money and, you know, sort of spending a lot of time at home practicing, but not knowing why or what really, because I think that's all part of the journey. But, uh, you know, after, I guess, uh, not not that long of, of, of that, of feeling a bit unsure, the opportunity through Ross arose and, and also in an entirely completely polarized way through no connection to guilt or whatsoever um i had been playing in manchester i'd gone i used to travel back from london to play in manchester almost every week at a time because there was a venue i was helping run and the scene there was so great and i loved yeah. the opportunity to just to go back and visit um i was playing with a, with a great bass player called called pete turner who in true manchester style is a nuclear physicist by day mm -hmm. but also one of the best bass players out there and he just said to me on a Sunday afternoon gig um, in, a, in a pub, basically, he said, I've got a really old mate of mine who's a big time pop music MD. Um, he's just been on tour with Kylie um, and uh, he's played with loads of loads of great pop artists. Um, I'm going to send him your number um, because I think you should know each other. And I just... I remember thinking like, oh, that's really nice, but that's the kind of thing that nothing ever comes of, right? And uh, it turns out Pete Turner was talking about a guy called Dave Tench. They're both from from near Wigan. They've been in the Wigan Youth Jazz Orchestra together, which is a, a really sensational youth band. And uh, Dave had been in London for quite a long time and been working with a lot of great um, popular music artists. Obviously, you think nothing of something like that. Uh, and then three months later, I got a call from Dave saying he had something uh, in mind for me and could I meet him for lunch? Uh, and I think that I completely spaffed the lunch date and put the date wrong in my diary and we ended up being on a holiday in Cyprus when we were supposed to meet, which is <laughs> absolutely cringe-inducingly unforgivable. That's pretty different from walking around the house with the phone waiting for it to ring, isn't it? It's like the, yeah. other, <laughs> the other end of the it's spectrum. It's the exact yeah. opposite, yeah. Yeah, I was so embarrassed. I was awful. Uh, thankfully for Dave, he had the patience to go, all right, okay, I'll see you next week. Okay. Um, thank thank goodness, really. <laughs> I don't know where. Anyway, we went, uh, we went to Hampstead where Dave lived and I thought, oh my goodness, a musician who lives in Hampstead. <laughs> this is untenable. He's not a jazz musician, clearly. And we had a nice, we had a nice chat and I think he, we didn't, well, we, we talked about music a fair bit, but we, we just hung out really and, I guess it's a kind of interview when you do something like that. You might not know it or you might not know what it's for. But a couple of weeks later, he said, I'd like you to come on board with Will Young and play Keys 2 for five days of rehearsals and a festival show. Festival show happened to be in Cheshire, actually. It was called Carfest. And that was 2015. So I was only one year out of college. Um, and I consider that to be my single most uh, fortunate and advantageous happenstance ever really and um i'm incredibly grateful to dave um what ended up happening was we we did uh the week's rehearsal with will um dave was the kind of md but he wasn't playing and the the guy who had been playing keys too had been doing what i was doing then before moved up to be the coming md and he is an incredible musician called christian galino 
who is another really, really big influence on me. And he had also been mentored by Dave over the last eight years. So you had this kind of lineage, right? Yeah. So you've got Dave, uh, who's probably in his late 30s at the time, Christian, who was 28, and then me, 24, 23, 24. Um, and this kind of lineage and these two keyboard chairs. And um, that week of rehearsals with Will, um, Christian was playing keys one, I was playing keys two. So I was asked to do Hammond organ, uh, strings and synths. Um, and that's really lucky because I, I'd, I'd been really, really interested in the Hammond organ for about seven or eight years. And I had a Nord C2, which looks the part. It's got two manuals and I knew my way around it. So to go into those rehearsals, I had uh, had the right gear and I had some idea. Um, and that week was one of the most uh, informative and memorable weeks of work I think I can ever remember. And I certainly felt to my shame underprepared going into it. And since that day, I feel like most of the time I do all of my homework before I go into a room and I, and, and I know exactly what's going on. I'm just now thinking about that. People listening to this, you might go, but what about that time you didn't know that song? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was a, a, a really eye-opening experience of how well one should know yeah. should should know music going in. And and to think about going into work with an artist of that, uh, I don't know, gravitas really, because Will had had quite a career at, at that point. It was 15 years and mm. 10 million records, whatever. Uh, and that was really exciting. And um, I'm not embarrassed to say when Dave rang me and told me who it was, I ran around the house screaming with excitement because mm. that was just the opportunity that I wanted the universe to give me. And um, how lucky, you know, to to have been to have had that handed to me, and to be um, to be able to you know get to play with with jazz legends like Stan mm. Saltzman, and then to get to play uh, to play with an artist like Will and thankfully i'm still did a gig with will two days ago mm. nine years later and um, he's amazing isn't lots. he he's one of those artists yeah. that spans so, such a long time as well hasn't he because if you look at where he he, yeah. he was like in like 2001 or something was when he That's first exactly yeah. right yeah we did a tour last year that was 20 years since pop idol yeah um which is just incredible and his, his fans are loyal and he's incredibly hard working uh, and a wonderful human being um who has become like a like a big brother i'm really mm. lucky that I got, I mean, what are the chances of that, that you'd be paired with someone that you got on so well with? And to be thrown into a band of really intimidating uh, virtuosity and success. I mean, mm. the first lineup I went into was uh, Ben Jones and Ben Epstein and Christian Galino, who had already done an exceptional amount of work. And yeah. they're, they're now in the house band of The Voice. Christian went on to uh, MD Brian Ferry and Kylie Minogue. Um, and then... Uh, Ash Schoen had been on drums, but it was uh, it was a student of his called Alex who was the who was the first drummer. So I mean, I didn't really realize uh, quite what level of musical royalty. I remember the first time I met the bass uh, the, the bass player on the second gig was Paul Turner, and we were doing a mime uh, for the BBC Lottery, and uh, we were sat in a room chatting as as chatting away. And I'd never met before. And I thought, I'm just going to Google this guy because I've just got a feeling. And it turns out his Paul's been in Jamiroquai for, for 15 uh. years. <laughs> and uh, it's something of a legend amongst basically anyone you know who owns an electric bass. Oh, wow. Uh, he's, he's pretty famous in the bass world. And um, I was I was just, you know, awestruck, really, by, th by these people. And their kindness and generosity to uh, a young, slightly naive guy who was just finding their way. 
Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to all the aforementioned people for, for having the patience, mm. I think. And I try and try and exercise the same generosity of spirit and patience when dealing with, with younger people now, because I mean, the whole, it doesn't matter what genre we're talking about. Um, people who are established giving young people opportunities is a hugely important part of jazz and it's so wonderful to see that happening in mm. the pop context as well. I know that it happens in classical music. I know that it happens in folk music and world music because otherwise the music dies. And if you try and keep it to, this is our thing, this is our generation, you're too young, you don't understand, then um, there's never any cross-pollination of ideas. There's never any crossover. And um, thankfully, you know, I think in other parts of society, people are a bit more selfish about about things but um thankfully with music we 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 like to pass it on because that's how we learned definitely and it's like um it's hector and the history boys yeah um i'm a big fan of alan bennett and the you know the the, the line pass it on boys that's what music is to me and that's what everyone i've mentioned in the last how long have i been nattering right now um everyone i mentioned did to me and so it's really important that i i do the same and uh, do my best to pass it on. Not that I'm going anywhere, but um, <laughs> I've started. I've started doing a little bit of teaching at Guildhall recently, and um, I've just loved it. Really, really loved, loved the the talent encountering it and remembering what it was like to be that age and, and thinking about what I needed and what nourished me and what was most helpful. And uh, it's it's the cycle, and it's yeah, passing it on. Hi, it's Adam here. I just want to quickly interrupt the podcast to ask you a very small favor. If you're getting lots of value from these conversations and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, please do subscribe to The Keys Coach wherever you get your podcasts. This means that you can continue to hear these great conversations and you'll be notified each time a new episode comes out. And if you're feeling even more generous, please do consider leaving us a review. This helps others to discover the podcast and join this community. Thank you so much for your support. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get back to the conversation. Obviously, you'd been studying and really practicing and playing lots and lots of kind of jazz. And for anyone, you know, for everyone who's listening that, you know, if you're, if you're learning jazz, you're learning, you know, the first, what some of the first thing you'll learn are like left hand voicings and how to improvise with your right hand and improvise in a certain style. And I imagine <laughs> knowing Will Young's music that, perhaps some of those things that you'd been practicing and spending so long getting together might not have been needed playing with playing with him so how did you manage that transition musically was that quite a change or was that kind of always running alongside that's a really great question adam that's something something i'd have missed um i'm 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 very very oh god i keep saying lucky um it was running alongside entire the entire time it was running alongside and to um perhaps best uh, epitomize that um, my second ever lesson with Malcolm Emerson at Guildhall was was really memorable because I was at Guildhall to study jazz and I walked in the room and he played me a James Taylor song called Line Him Up and he, and he just said to me, right, we're going we're gonna to write this down together. We're going to transcribe this in the room now. Um, we talked about it and it was a song that I'd, I'd come across before because I'd been shown James Taylor. Excuse me, Shirley, I'm busy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'd been shown James Taylor's music, but I'd actually only encountered the early records, Sweet Baby James and things. And I thought that they were sweet, but, um, um, you know, a little country-ish for my taste. And then when I found um, Hourglass and October Road through Malcolm, 
I was I couldn't believe the the kind of combination of of influences and sounds that moved me so much you know it was like all my favorite bits of Steely Down with lyrics as good as Joni Mitchell's with this incredibly mixed aesthetic with like some slightly 90s sounds but still really tasteful uh but with this incredible array of session musicians that was a world of James Taylor that was new to me so Malcolm showed me line him up and I wrote out what he what he uh, cleverly calls a master rhythm chart which is basically like uh, a lead sheet with extra information Um, so sometimes two staves you'll have things like um, extra parts written with brackets like strings or bells um, bass lines can be on there, but often it can be just chord slashes. Bits of important piano licks would be on there. So the middle eight of Iron Mup's got this little piano answering fill. So I'd wrote those out. I've still got that chart to this day. And that kind of characterizes my education at Guildhall because I was playing, you know, in third year, I was playing free jazz. I was obsessed with Paul Blay and only listened to ECM records. Um, and yet a year earlier, I was uh, playing the whole of the Nightfly with an ensemble. And that's what one of the things I loved about Malcolm. He wasn't teaching us only jazz because he knew that that was what, not what most of us would end up doing. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure that people would, would take issue with that. Well, it says jazz on the course. That's all they should be doing. I would not have been happy just doing that. And I'm so... So grateful that he had the foresight and the knowledge to give us a proper musical education. Now, whether that should be called something different on a course, I suspect, maybe. But um, how incredible to be to be given all these things alongside, um, alongside the history of jazz. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that. They sound like they were incredible lessons. I love Malcolm. I think he's great. Yeah, um, he's amazing, isn't he? Yeah. So those those skills went stra- applied straight to to, to Will's music. Uh, and although not quite at the same level, I hadn't really considered keyboard programming until I got to that world and saw right. how Dave and Christian approached with a attention to detail that was um, completely enthralling. I mean, these guys are on another level when it comes to programming. I mean, it's it's something I've gotten steadily more and more into as I've done more gigs in that world. But I'll never forget in the second day, Christian saying to me, oh, that sounds like you've got hall two reverb. Can you go to hall one? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, what an incredible that skill. Is, that's niche, isn't it? Yeah. yeah that is very niche. But, but that, but, but he would, he would kind of coach me through programming, yeah. both him and Dave. They'd be like, the tremolo is like, needs to be 5% less mm. <laughs> the rate or something. I love that attention to detail. And I love that sound. And that fed back to, you know, my first Nord and, mm. and all these experiences where I sort of didn't really know what I was doing as a teenager. I was pressing buttons and mm. using people's presets. And then here I'm in a situation where your aim is to reproduce a sound on a record. So it could be a big fat brass synth or it could be some beautiful string quartet lines. How are you going to do that? That challenge has always really excited me. Mm. And still to this day, I love an opportunity to do a day's keyboard programming um, because it, it's it's such a challenging thing. Yeah. And uh, it's a particular cross of science and creative skill set that I really relish. Um, I don't know if you've if you've had the opportunity to do much of that, but it's so satisfying no, it when you find a yeah. sound. And and so many people aren't interested in doing that. I think, great, more, you know, more fun for me mm. to be uh, looking at, you know, loading seven kinds of Wurlitz, Wurlitz samples into my Nord to see which one sounds most like a, a record. 
totally. I think that's such nerd a... Nerd alert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the nerd alert has gone off, but it's great, man. It's great. Um, so after after kind of uh, playing with All Young, like you've got all sorts of other people. Anyone who's listening, J- Jamie's played with so many different people, the brand new heavies, Misha Paris, Oli Merz. Did all of those opportunities kind of follow on or were there kind of gaps or did, did one thing lead to another? I remember finishing my first tour with Will and feeling heartbroken. At that point, we weren't sure whether Will would be going back to his old band um, or would be using this kind of new this new band, which consisted of people who had been working with him prior and new people like me. Um, and I remember feeling really genuinely upset and thinking, I've got to this world now where, I mean, I'm, it must be said that for, for Will, he treats his musicians incredibly well, impeccably well. Um, almost uncharacteristically well for the industry now. So I've I've since learned that this is sadly becoming rarer and rarer. But we were uh, exceptionally well looked after. And I remember thinking, gosh, I don't want to go back to playing in restaurants. I've been doing this gig at Brasserie Zadell, playing for five hours in a restaurant. Solo piano. Um, solo piano, oh, yeah. Wow. I've done a lot of that over the years. Um, and I have found some of it to be really stimulating and really helpful and some of it to be completely mind-destroyingly tedious um it all depends on the on the context really uh and i remember being determined to keep my feet on the ground and i did a the biggest show i did with will was this was actually the second year we ever did was which was hyde park it was a radio 2 festival there's fifty thousand people there we did half an hour um and later that evening i was playing in a restaurant being ignored because <laughs> i thought of it i sort of enjoyed yeah. the semi-comic um uh dichotomy of, of of those two of those two things really um so I, I was determined to keep my feet on the ground but at the same time i didn't i didn't want to i wanted to go on around the world you know and um depending on who who you're playing for people people can get a gig and then that can be their life for years right that's kind of what i wanted i think i wanted to be whisked off around the world um one of the curious things about Will's career is that um, he's got an incredibly loyal British fan base, but due to the nature of how his career started, um, he's never really toured outside of the UK, which means that your touring life is limited to five to six weeks right? every couple of years. So that's basically what happened. I finished with Will um, and I kind of crashed back down to earth. I remember the day after the first tour being a real challenge. And people often talk about tour, end of tour blues, tour bubble syndrome, um, post-tour depression and all these things. And I really felt that because you've been in this little bubble with this family for so long. Um, and that those four weeks for me were, I used to say that was undoubtedly the best month of my whole life ever. That's how great it was because I loved every single second of it um, because I was 24 single and going around the country playing these amazing music and amazing venues with wonderful people but then you come out of that and you and slowly it dawns on one that you can't actually just do that and you, and you kind of realize that being a musician is much more than that and you kind of have to let go of the ego part of you that just wants to play to lots of people and only you know only be played this much and only play where i'm treated like an artist and i soon realized that I miss playing jazz and I'd let my chops get really sloppy. And I remember feeling really down about that and going to watch some jazz gigs and thinking, I can't play anymore. Um, I, you know, I should, maybe I should just give up jazz and just try this pop thing. I remember seriously considering that. Um, and slowly through, through working with singers, which I kind of considered to be the other main facet of my musical life. Um, I re-found a love and a way of playing that, 
I guess it, imp- it, it implemented some elements of the pop sensibility because mm-hmm. there'd be, you know, like soul or R&B tunes or like Stevie Wonder songs that are a sort of crossover. Um, for me, he's kind of halfway between standards and pop music. Yeah. And a like ultimate crossover mark, really. And then there's other great examples as well. Um, but I kind of found my way back into playing jazz. And then I really found my found my love of jazz. Rediscovered it and and, and um, I was... Again, just had these opportunities thrown at me, but James Pearson is the artistic director at, at Ronnie Scott's gave me the chance to be, uh, to, to support uh, at Ronnie's with my own trio. This was probably a few months after the first tour ended. Um, and I remember it was a Christmas. So it's basically because no one else was around and um, I remember putting together a trio. And I remember being so excited to be playing at Ronnie's under my own name, whatever, you know, it's the early set, whatever, but it's exciting when you're 25. And I remember not being very good at all. And uh, and feeling like okay, this is not this is not good enough. If you're going to play a piano trio, you've got to get your together. And um, I really wanted to work on that. And then I think that that year after that tour, I got back into the shed. And at that time, I was living in a in a house with uh, skillful musicians who were very close friends. One of whom was uh, uh, an exceptional drummer called Will Glazer, whose um, ability to practice was jaw-dropping and inspirational because Will would do uh, regularly do eight, nine hours a day. And so living around that kind of commitment to the art form, and he was only practicing uh, music for, you know, within a jazz context, really. It was improvised music and world music, but yeah. it wasn't like he, you know, was determined to be the next uh, pop session drummer. So being around that energy was really great. And, um, and that kind of set me back on a path that was more dedicated to my craft, mm-hmm. maybe rather than like, looking for the next pop star or the next thing you can post about um, and sort of reconnected me with the instrument. Um, and I found, like I said, I rediscovered my love of jazz, got back into, um, into playing trio, into playing solo, into learning standards, into all the things that I loved at Guildhall and had perhaps neglected for a year whilst I'd been doing this shiny, exciting, glamorous life and soon found a balance where both could live side by side, but I've always felt like um, jazz musicians considered to me to be too too poppy, and pop musicians considered me to be too jazzy. So <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't know if you've ever had that, no, had that feeling. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't. I, I think I think there's room for everything. You know, I think that's the yeah. best way to think. I mean, um, maybe this would be a great time to chat about your work with Ian Shaw, and because I, I know you've oh, yeah. you've played with so many different mm. so many different singers, but I mean you've done a lot with Ian Shaw, you've done a lot with Emma Smith. I mean maybe let, let's talk about those projects because they yeah. were kind of these are projects where you've been involved as kind of like an arranger or a musical director as you know on the rather than just playing, you know. Yeah, that's a great segue actually because it was around that time that I started working properly with both Ian and Emma to. Uh, two uh, insane, insanely brilliant vocalists. Um, meeting and hanging out with Ian was a lesson in itself, really. And uh, he he's impacted my life more than anyone, I think. Uh, he's influenced me as a person, as a musician. Yeah, more than anyone I can think of. Um, so we spent a lot of time together getting drunk <laughs> and a lot of time talking and listening to records. And um, he introduced me to Martin Murphy and... And we sh- we bonded over an absolute enthralling dedication to the genius of Journey Mitchell. Uh, and although Ian had this amazing band, this quartet with with Barry Green on piano, I loved Barry. He was he was a great. He hadn't actually taught me, but um, uh, he, I'd watched him loads, and he'd, he'd been an influence. He's 
astonishingly um like a subtle accompanist he can just sort of yeah he sort of melts behind a singer and he's just the textures are, are, are sublime um i started doing the odd depth for barry with ian and uh, i think i felt pretty out of my depth and soon learned how to up my game another great thing ian did was he just he just tell me he just say you're speeding up he'd say why are you playing that can you swing there why are you trying to do stride? You can't do stride. It was great. It was so frank because of the context of our really close friendship. Um, it was it was really great to hear those things. Yeah. When you're just when you yeah. I mean, this is possibly a bit earlier when I was still at still at college, but um, it's so helpful to have direct feedback. And um, the other, the only other time I had that really helpfully was Ian introduced me to Claire Martin, who's another you know one of this country's great great jazz artists and I did three nights with her at the crazy Cox in 2016 um I'm so pleased that my my grandparents both managed to be there to see one and uh, each of the three nights Claire 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 would give me notes and it oh. was so helpful I told her that we did a gig last month and she she was uh commenting on my sort of progress over the last 10 years which is very nice mm. to hear and and she's I was saying yeah but that's because you told me off you said don't don't copy what I do. Don't, don't put comp in that range. Um, don't speed up at that tempo uh, and don't do that ending. You know, it was just, it was so frank. I mean, she's like that as a person. Yeah. It's, it's so refreshing to be told uh, and how wonderful and rare to be given an opportunity to do the same show three nights in a row at the same venue. That very, that, you know, that really doesn't happen very often. You get like another bite at the cherry, don't you? You get another, another oh, time totally. to do it all again and sort of, and I'm, I'm sure things changed each night as well. Definitely, yeah, yeah. It was really exciting playing duo with Claire, and and so yeah, like I say, I had that yeah. from Ian, and so our relationship developed. It was it was very much, um, it was it was friendship, and it was art, and he was showing me books and writings and all the other wonderful, wonderfully rich things that are part of him as a as an artist, as a broadcaster, as an interviewer. He's in he's mind blowing work for for refugees and and, and human rights and um, all the other incredible facets to to what what is you know really genuinely and or inspiring human being um but we we started a band a few years after that it's probably 2017 ian started a trio actually and he wanted to do something unusual he wanted to do a trio without bass and he wanted to use a guy who he'd recorded with with on his albums with cedar walton that he made on uh in new york in 2000 and 2001 uh, and it was ian bellamy who's a, Amazing a saxophonist, yeah. incredible saxophone player yeah he was a family member of loose tubes and ecm recording artist and complete all-round legend really so ian started this trio with us and that became the start of our professional collaboration other than the odd pub gig or the odd dep really and that's when we started properly working together and we made an album that's called what's new that is uh, streamable and it's standards and god it was terrifying to make no bass no drums a very loose arrangement so it's very uh it's very honest and kind of simple music i guess very much focusing on the lyrics and the sound yeah what, what an honor to be with those two legends of british jazz really they are no absolutely um mostly because they're so very old now <laughs> but um they are delightful and i learned a huge amount being in this trio that is still going six years later five years later um we made an album what's new and um yeah what what an exciting thing but they'd also sorry they'd, they'd also recorded uh they recorded these two albums like i say with cedar walton so you know I, you know pinching myself thinking 
goodness, we played some of the arrangements that they'd done that were Cedar's handwritten charts, mm. you know, because because Cedar and Ian, they've been very, very close friends and and, and toured a lot together. Yeah. Ian, Ian had an, uh, a really amazing career in the States, which is very rare for British jazz musicians. He had a great manager in the 90s. He took him over there and got him on a on a fantastic label, Concord Jazz, I think it was. And so he sung with he sung with people whose, you know, people whose names you only ever saw on on Blue Note Records. It was uh, it was really exciting. And of course was mentored by by Mark Murphy. Yeah. And uh, so that was um that that whole relationship really has been has been um unbelievably influential on me as a musician and uh, the nice kind of not conclusion but the nice sort of uh current end of that um of that relationship is an album that's coming out in october that i've produced and co-written with ian fantastic and um it's the thing that i am most proud of in my entire life without a doubt it's called greek street friday and we wrote all the songs together uh, down by the seaside in folkestone and um uh, yeah, I'm just very proud. It's the first record that I've produced. Um, and it's not really jazz. It's um, kind of singer-songwriter. It references a lot of the music that we, we talked about, but it's got a bit more kind of uh, Al Jarreau, Steely Dan, early Elton John, a bit of David Bowie. Um, and it was a total dream to make. Uh, the first single's out, actually. It's called... Um, supposed to plug things on things like this yeah absolutely do i'm gonna put links to all of this in the description yeah great the single is out it's called to be held and the album is uh called greek street friday and we're actually launching it at ronnie scott's we've got um another mind-boggling legend ian thomas on drums wow um you know formerly of uh george michael and mark knopfler and i mean yeah nikki al's big band that's as impressive as any of them um that happened because ian shaw said to me okay, we've written this record, who do you want? And mm. I said, well, I've only met him once, but um, I've always, always wanted to play with Ian Thomas. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm really, really proud of this thing that we've created. In fact, just uh, in a couple of hours, I'm going to collect the test pressing of the vinyl. So it's oh, all exciting. very current, current and exciting. It seems so nice as well that so many of the musical projects you've done have not only been like Im- immensely rewarding musically, but seems like they've also developed into like really amazing friendships and like quite significant yeah. parts of your life as well. I mean, you don't always necessarily awesome, realize yeah. that going into it, but I suppose just because of the way you are and, you know, and, and, and the sort of music you're playing and the, and having to be wait around at gigs with them and, and you just, these friendships yeah. form, you know? Um, totally. Yeah. I think I've, I've perhaps not considered that until, until you said it, that nearly all of these people I mentioned with are like my closest friends, including, mm. including Emma Smith, who you mentioned earlier, who, um, who I've been working with for 10 years now, and she's just an absolute, you know, world-class force of nature. Um, so yeah, I think Charlie Watts said 90% of being a musician is just hanging around. Yeah. You know, we spend our time, we spend most of our time not playing, right? We're thinking about playing or talking about playing. But um, one of the things I love is this universal uh, jazz musician, or sorry, musician obsession with with humor and often relating to to wordplay and other mm. silliness. I know that Bill Evans was as interested in this as was Ronnie Scott, mm. as is Ian Shaw, as is you know as is Will Young. And you know, I like making I like making people laugh, and I like being silly and, and being funny. And um, one of the great things that I took from Ian was an approach to music that wasn't just about music. It was about how you speak to an audience, how you present music, how you communicate and, you know, and basically making them laugh. And, and so one of the things I did 
uh, last year to really try and push myself to do something different was to uh, to do a solo yeah. one man show at the Crazy Cox, which I did last June, and I've done four or five times subsequently. Piano tour, uh, right? It's called. Piano yeah, piano. thank you. Yeah, well done. I mean, uh, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done, and I couldn't have done it without Ian's help. He directed me and edited the scripts and stuff, and although terrifying, it is. Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say possibly the most satisfaction I've ever had from performing was, was, uh, was actually being on stage. I did a Ronnie Scott's just for a Sunday lunch with my wonderful trio of Connor Chaplin and Luke Tomlinson. And, um, you know, it, I'm not ashamed to say I get a real kick out of, out of making people laugh and I could Im- instantly see how addictive that is for stand-up comedians. And so I think that that whole experience has made me really comfortable at public speaking. Well, mostly, I like to think and um, good at it. And I think that one of the important skills that we're not taught by amazing music teachers necessarily um, is how to present uh, a gig, how to communicate with an audience and how to make them feel comfortable and then how to move them and excite them and make them laugh and cry, you know, because that's the end goal really, isn't it? We want them to laugh and cry. Absolutely. Not at the same time. So how how did you do that? How <laughs> What kind of stories? Yeah, so... Um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe really. So Piano Talk was uh, a sort of story of my life in London. So it kind of starts with me um, being 18 and moving to London to study at the Guildhall. And it's basically my, my life in London loosely centered around Soho because most of these gigs I'd done were in Soho. Um, although I did one last week at the Buxton International Festival, which is exciting, but was also relevant because Buxton's pretty near Altrincham where, where I right. grew up. And there are lots of people there from from Altrium. And it's basically seven or eight solo piano arrangements that came to me during lockdown. The whole project kind of originated in lockdown, being on my own. And I recorded a solo piano album that I didn't release or anything, but it was a really, really, really constructive process for me. Um, I'm sure you can relate to this, mm-hmm. but recording yourself and listening back and and coming up with arrangements of really simple songs. I they were, you know, I wasn't playing and playing giant steps it was really folky things i did a couple of journey songs and randy newman things and then a couple of lesser known standards but uh that was my main focus during the first six months of lockdown and i did it all on keyscape which i think was really which is really great because i didn't even have a real piano and it meant i could correct all the mistakes yeah it's fantastic i love keyscape um it's wonderful isn't it yeah and that was i learned a lot about solo piano from doing that so I thought, oh, maybe I should do a gig. And then I thought, well, maybe if I do a gig, maybe I should just, you know, talk. Because I love talking to the audiences. I love telling stories. And I love, you know, being on stage, actually really get something out of it. And I always, I used to feel like with a gig, either the talking would go really well and the music would be terrible right. or the other way around. And I think I was often more nervous and cared more about the talking at some times, which is obviously dependent on the musical situation. But I tried to put both elements together and it's pretty much evenly balanced. So there's only eight songs, but the show is like an hour and 20 minutes. So there's an awful lot of talking and it goes into things like experiences at the Guildhall, um, uh, my family, and basically every story is kind of intended to be vaguely amusing, entertaining, um, funny stories about working with, with Will, working with um, Misha Paris and Claire Martin. Uh, and then all there's one, there's one sort of chapter that's like all the famous people I've managed to make a fool of myself in front of or accidentally insult <laughs> or just generally behave inappropriately towards. <laughs> because um, I really think you should never meet your heroes because it, it always, it's always gone badly for me. Uh-huh. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's not something I'm going to keep doing loads, but uh, I do think that it's it's good to push ourselves, right? And, and so when you set when you set, I put that date in the yeah. diary in January, and I thought, right, I've got six months to do this thing. Obviously, four months go by, and then I think, shit, oh my god, I've really you know, and people are actually going to come to this. They're only can only because they're my friends, and I've told them to. But people are are expecting something, and and I don't want to just play the piano. I want to make a show, and with with strands and narrative and a kind of conclusion, definitely, and, and, and stuff that's you know, there's a little bit of politics in there. There's you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff that Ian helped me out with, um, stuff about my childhood and, and stuff about many of the great teachers and trying to pay homage to the club and stories about Ronnie, you know, a place that's had such an enormous impact somewhere. I'm still fortunate enough to play really regularly and consider myself in a vague way connected to the history of, I mean, Ian sang in Ronnie's band for like five or six years. Ronnie's kind of the reason that Ian sings jazz. He heard him singing there with his pop band and said, you should, you should sing, uh, you know, and there's a lot, there's a lot in there about, about um, what it is to be a gay man and to be a musician and to be, um, you know, living in this world of identity politics and talking about how people, I think particularly for me, it was people like uh, Will, for example, Will Young, who's the producers of Pop Idol, uh, asked him to, to not come out as gay because they thought that it would be bad for the show. Right. And he said, absolutely not, not a chance. And then for people like Ian, who, you know, who attended some of the first Pride rallies of the of the early 80s, and then Ronnie would ask him to sing Lover Man. And, you know, and he wouldn't wouldn't change the change, change of the gender pronouns. And that's stuff that's in like 1990, mm-hmm. 1991. That's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. So very much feeling like standing on the shoulders of giants. And two of those giants are really good friends. You know, not to say, not to mention the, you know, the countless other, other icons. But I must say, in our in our world, it certainly felt a lot rarer to find open LGBT people uh, in jazz and pop music. So um, the ones that are there really stand out, mm. and they're they're all the more strong because of their few num- uh, smaller number. I think absolutely. So uh, I'm yeah, I'm trying to trying to pay homage to that really because. That that one single issue alone has changed beyond all manner of imagination in the last ten years since I've left Guildhall, um, and entirely for the positive. So, um, how how exciting and nourishing to see a scene that is completely you know completely open to to anyone and seemingly without any prejudice actually. Amazing. Oh man, it sounds like such an incredible show. Can people, are you doing, you said you don't want to, well, it sounds like not a lot of people are doing this, right? It's quite a, I haven't really ever heard of anything like it where people are doing no, a full show. I don't show. know what you call it either. It's like a beautiful mix between kind cabaret? of cabaret, jazz, musical theatre, like stand up. Yeah. It's like a, it's kind of. That's exactly what I'm going yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't think many people are doing it. And um, I think at first I felt a bit of shame that musicians wouldn't understand it. And then yeah. I realised that, that, that I was putting that on myself mm. and, and people are actually want everyone to do their own thing. And, and I think that, you know, the older you get and you see like, oh, this is my skill set. And then you look around, you're like, look at all these other incredible piano mm. players in London. They're better than me at all of these things, you know? And like, why is it that I'm doing this and they're doing that? And, and you think, well, it, we're all actually completely and utterly unique uh, in terms of personality and, and musicality. So we should be celebrating our differences, right? Mm. So that's why it's it's great that in in this scene i think that 
piano players and keyboard players have very pretty close close bond mm. uh i never feel in competition with people and and feel pretty good friends with a lot of people who do the same work as I do yeah. um, at a similar age. And that's a wonderful thing. I don't know if that quite exists with all different instrument categories. A lot of the time it's sort of practical, you know, drummers don't tend to hang out with drummers <laughs> as much, but I've, I don't know. I, I imagine you felt the same that we're, we're all out to help each other. Absolutely. Kind of I think that's one of the really nice things. Iota of resentment. Yeah. And that's kind of why I'm doing this, to be honest, you know, to... yeah. Well, what a, what a brilliant, a brilliant sort of, uh, a distillation of mm. that of that sentiment really um that you're doing this to help people and to you know to elevate the the thoughts and feelings and emotions of of your contemporaries what an, a laudable and wonderful thing and i'm so grateful for you to to you for asking me no to jamie it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on last question what does the uh it's kind of an open one. What does the what does the future hold for you? Is there something that you're like, I haven't done that yet. I would love to do that. Or uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, uh, well, you've you've maybe like joked uh, an interest in doing my show a couple more times because um, there's nothing. I don't have anything booked in for it. But maybe I should just keep it bubbling away. But then uh, I need to write some new jokes. <laughs> um, the one thing, Adam, that I haven't done that I'd love to do is is a, is a tour of the world, really, and. Um, I've recently been traveling a fair bit and certainly before COVID was, was doing the odd gig here and there played in Asia a couple of times. I played in America a couple of times, but that's nothing really compared to what um, people, people do. And, and, and I, you know, I love travel. I'd love to see the world. I'd love to play in India. I'd love to play in Brazil. Um, I'd love to play in Japan. And I really hope those opportunities come my way but the frustrating thing is you just you just can't choose anything in this in this crazy world well the business we called show it just <laughs> it just happens to you yeah i sometimes think that we just sort of uh ian bellamy once said um said don't don't lose lose faith because you're not um sort of going out there and hustling and posting and 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 sort of trying to make work he said he said, if you sit in the garden and are still, the birds will come to you. <laughs> I thought, how great, a brilliant, brilliant bit of Buddhism to have. Yeah. Um, and I, I know life's not as simple as that. And um, all the aforementioned mm. things can, can really help in, in, in a career. But um, I do think that we, we, just, we just wait and, and the universe throws us things, you know, like some of the stuff I've talked about today. Um, we just have to be patient and try and be grateful for all the opportunities we have. And, and one thing I'm trying to do at the moment is just to be, it's just not, not to complain about things. So, you know, we all do gigs that we don't necessarily love, but we can, with the right mindset, we can take positives from them. 100%. And I think we need to, we need to retain that because we all, we all know that musicians love to complain, right? how do you make a musician complain? I don't know. Give them a good job. <laughs> As, yeah. So, you know, we love it. So, and it, and it's easy once you've done, once you've done exciting, glamorous things to, you know, some people would, would look down on, on other kind of performances, but it's really not about that. I mean, we're, every time we get to, to play music with people, we're, we're doing something very special. How incredibly fortunate are we to be in a place where we can do this regularly, um, you know, and as a job, I mean, you know, I'm just trying to retain that kind of, uh, yeah, was that called a gratitude meditation? I, I think it is. I think it definitely sounds like a beautiful way to end. I'm I'm going off with that in my, <laughs> my mind. Adam. Thank you for bringing me around to that. No, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think it's been so great hearing hearing about all these stories. And I think 
I think that's such a lovely, a lovely sentiment. You know, I think, I think if you just carry on doing all the amazing things you're doing and just, and just being, I think you're going to end up doing a lot of amazing, other amazing opportunities. So yeah, thank you so much for coming it's on. It's really kind. Thank you. Um, it's my absolute pleasure. Absolutely talked nonstop for 90 minutes. No, it's been great. And there's been so many amazing nuggets in there. I think for anyone who wants to, you know, go into this industry or is learning or is maybe a bit stuck on their journey. And um, I think there's some really amazing positive messages in there yeah. that it kind of, it sort of keep on going in it and it all works Yeah, out. have faith and have have patience. And, you know, amongst all the, the sort of pseudo glamorous stories, and there's a lot mm -hmm. of time when you just, you just sat at a piano and you've got to, you've got to keep, you got to keep on keeping on. Definitely. Which is another Alan, another Alan Bennett. And um, just just have faith. I think Bill Evans said it best. He said, if you look after the music, the music will look after you. And so he shot himself away in New York in the early 50s. And then Miles Davis came knocking. So it, it works. It worked out for him. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, Cheers, great Adam, all the best. Thanks very much. Great to see you, mate. Take care. See you soon. Thank you so much to Jamie for coming on the podcast. It was great hearing about everything he's up to. Do go and check out all those links in the description. Follow him on Instagram and go and see him play. Thanks very much for listening. We have lots of other awesome guests coming up for you over the next few weeks. So do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode. Hold up. 